Hello there, welcome to the Uncover Up. Who is in the mood to go looking for monsters? This is all a test. This is all a test. This is all a test. Now, I didn't tell you about this, but I <laughs> I went monster hunting on the weekend. Ah, okay. What'd you come up with? I went to the Nith River. Okay. And, and where was, is that? The Nith River, it's, it's in southern Ontario. Okay. It goes through places like New Hamburg. It goes through uh, Paris, not the good Paris, but like the, the okay Paris. The Ontario Paris. The Ontario Paris, which is actually <laughs> kind of pretty. It's shallow. It's very wide. It's very picturesque. And yeah, I spent a bunch of time down there on the weekend trying to find a monster, specifically the Nith River Monster, a.k.a. Nithy, a.k.a. Slimy Casper. And you found it. I did not. So I've got a headline for you. Uh, 1953, August 21st. Headline, Alligators and Men Lay Traps for Elusive River Monster. Okay. That's a hell of a that's a hell of a headline. That's one of those old timey headlines that goes on forever. Yeah. And then I'm going to get into the actual body of the article now. New Hamburg, Ontario, August 20th. Four men and their alligators stand vigilant on the banks of the Nith River, determined to rid New Hamburgers of the monster. It takes only the grunt of an alligator in the warm night air to spring the trap, they say. Yeah, no, I love it. I'm riveted. So let me tell you the story. All it's right. July of 1953 in the sleepy town of New Hamburg on the Nith River in southern Ontario. Strange tracks were discovered in the sand along the riverside. Uh, they were three-toed footprints, and in between those was a groove about the width of a bicycle tire, as if whatever left the tracks was dragging a heavy tail behind it. Okay. So a lot of speculation. We got three toes, uh, so that means that it wasn't an alligator, it wasn't a crocodile, it wasn't a lizard, which tend to have five toes. Some people said, oh, maybe it was like a, a turtle. Because here in Ontario, we do get snapping turtles. Yes. Some people argued it was a snake, which makes no sense. No sense at all. Well, we do have snakes in Ontario, but they're tiny things. And they like, also don't have feet. Ah, uh, yes, like like the other snakes. Right. I mean, that's that's one of those sort of key things <laughs> about of, snakes. Yes. Yeah, yes, like if you're hanging out at a, at a party and somebody's like, you know what they say about snakes? They don't have feet. That's good yeah. party talk. <laughs> so there was a lot of discussion about, okay, well, what, what is this? What is this yeah. strange monster that has emerged from the Nith River? And it was in all of the newspapers. And I have another quote from another article. Okay. One redeeming feature of the subject is that no one has reported seeing a flying saucer. So it is doubtful if science fiction fans will advance the theory that the thing came from outer space. That's a very early 50s sentence. Right, okay. Because, of course, this was the 50s at, like, I would say the height of flying saucer mania. Yeah. So yeah, anytime yeah. anything weird happened, like, of course, like the Seattle windshield epidemic, oh, there's a chip like in my flying, windshield. Flying saucers. It's got to be aliens. So the first person to actually see this creature, Nithy, slimy Casper, was the chief of police, George Thomas. And so you would think, oh, that's... Okay, so that's got to be a reliable witness then, like the chief that's of right, police. Yeah. That's an authority figure. A, exactly, a credible observer. Yeah. Now, I don't know how credible he was, because apparently he's also the first person to fire a weapon at it. <laughs> okay. But missed. Like, I don't 
that seems pretty trigger happy to me. Hey, there's a thing. I should probably just, I guess the idea is when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. When you have a service revolver, everything looks like a practice a target. target. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he said it was about four feet long and walked with a lizard's gait. Okay. So this story was included in a collection of cryptid sightings and other supernatural phenomenon titled Things, that's the title of this book, by Ivan T. Sanderson, and that's the guy we're talking about today. Okay. So let's get into Sanderson. So Sanderson is into cryptids. Sanderson, his... I mean, he is Captain Cryptid. Okay, some that's people his have, beat. That, that's his beat, and some people have argued he is actually the guy who coined the phrase cryptozoology. Okay. So this, I mean, whether or not that is accurate, he certainly is one of the fathers of the field. This is okay. a guy that's going to kind of set the table for what comes afterwards. Uh, things like uh, Bigfoot and the Bermuda Triangle and sea serpents, like this is the guy. Okay. And so now, it's the guy that we need to know about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did a bunch of episodes on cryptids a while back. And I remember in the Bigfoot episode, which I did the research on, there were Bigfoot sightings that go back into the 20s or maybe even into um, various indigenous uh, mythologies. But what you're suggesting is this guy's the, sort of the modern uh, synthesizer. He's the guy that brings it into pop culture. Okay, okay. Yeah. And it's this book, it's Things. And the sequel to Things, imaginatively titled, take a guess, see if you can guess. Uh, stuff? No, More Things. Oh. More things. <laughs> yeah, you were being, you were being too creative there. Okay, so let's talk about this guy Sanderson, who was so important to this field that you know I love because, of course, I've been rooting for the Loch Ness monster for years. Uh, yeah. Mothman is an obsession of mine. Like cryptids, this is our like this is our playground, and so you, this is a guy I we think, need to learn about. I think you should get a, a Loch Ness tattoo. Can, can we put that on the list of tattoos that you're going to get? Let's get one tattoo at a time. <laughs> Sanderson, Ivan T. Sanderson, was born in Scotland in 1911. Now, I'm going to really lean into Scottish stereotypes here and tell you that his father was a whiskey manufacturer. Okay. You can't get more Scottish than that. I'm going to lean away from the Scottish stereotype for a second and tell you that his father was killed by a rhinoceros in 1925. Huh. Was, was this some kind of colonial expedition thing? or It was. Hmm. He was actually making a documentary in Kenya, and apparently they were taking footage of the rhinoceros when it killed his father. And oh, wow. As an adult, he actually saw that footage and watched his oh. father get trampled. Oh, that's pretty traumatic. I mean, he lived for a little while, but then eventually died of the injuries. Uh, that's not an animal I feel like you want to get killed by the rhinoceros. And if, you know... This it's not is, going to be a clean kill. No, and but this is also... Uh, the, one of your lines now is coming into my head, which is, if I only knew these two things about our subject, that his father was killed by a rhinoceros and he becomes the founder of contemporary cryptid mythology... Maybe that's all I need to know. Like, I feel like I've got a handle on Yeah, already, already we've really painted a bit of a picture of this guy. So he gets extremely well-educated. Uh, he goes to a place called Eton, yeah, which yeah. is a very fancy school. Uh, which, the Eton boys. Yeah, I mean, a lot of... Imagine the poshest English accent that you can think of. It's probably an Eton accent. Right. He also exactly. goes to Cambridge to study botany and ethnology. 
Ooh. So very well trained. And he gained, he gained some fame in the late 20s and the 1930s for traveling to tropical parts of the world and writing about the animals he encountered. And this was sort of a very popular thing at the time. There was a lot of, I mean, it was very colonial. There was a lot of English people sort of traveling the world and coming back, you know, that kind of Ripley's Believe It or Not style right. exhibitions. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and the cabinet of curiosities. Yeah, that, right? exactly, this, that kind of the, thing. This thing that people would have in the Western world where it was filled up with trinkets from their colonial adventures. And it would and include it, probably uh, like arrowheads, shrunken heads. Yeah. Shrunken heads, I was thinking of that. Um you know, a stuffed something or other, like a stuffed platypus. Yep. And uh, maybe a boomerang. Yep. Oh, yeah, you know, for sure. Just, like, just a bunch of random stuff that they yeah. had grabbed and uh, put out of context. So he's part of that movement. Okay. Now, while in Central Africa, he claimed to have been attacked by an Olitiao, which is either a giant bat or a giant flying reptile or a mythical demon, depending on the source. Now, this thing has apparently like a 12-foot wingspan, two-inch teeth. This is like a, a serious monster, although also no evidence that it actually does exist. So I'm I'll, thinking, of course, of Mothman. Yeah, it does like, seem it a little Mothman. It sounds exactly like Mothman, like yeah. with glowing eyes, or did I just make that up? Did no, you, you just made that up. Eyes? No, oh, okay. I did not say glowing eyes, but <laughs> okay. I, I mean, it probably has glowing eyes. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it does seem a little Mothman-ish. So... We already start to see kind of a pattern for Sanderson in that he's trained classically as a scientist, but yeah. he definitely is dipping his toe in this sort of world of the supernatural, in this sort of world of things that, that science is not necessarily willing to acknowledge. In fact, he's dipping his toe into the world of somebody we've talked about before, Charles Fort. Charles Fort? I feel like he's going to need his own episode. Like... He's another one of these patron saints of the uncover-up. But unlike Ruppelt, we haven't dedicated an episode just to his work. Yeah, and he's, he's an important... We discussed him at some length in our Mothman episode. We talked about him a little bit there. Charles Fort is most well-known for his 1919 nonfiction work, The Book of the Damned. And by The Damned, Fort was referring to phenomena and creatures that didn't fit in with the dominant scientific paradigm. And so were excluded from study. They were like, they were shunned. Scientists were like, well, this stuff doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit in with what we believe. So therefore, we're not going to talk about it at all. Like even acknowledging the existence of this stuff by the mainstream scientific establishment is, it's verboten. And so this book, which is very long and exhausting, it's notable for devoting a considerable amount of pages to UFOs, Although this was decades before the flying saucer movement took hold and before the term UFO was coined by Captain Ruppelt. And Fort also indexes all sorts of bizarre events where stones fall from the sky or frogs fall from the sky or ships go missing. There are sections on the possible existence of, of giants and fairies. Uh, and there's still actually, even today, there's a lot of people who push for the existence of giants. We get a lot of emails from people asking us to do an episode on giants. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. And we and we will at, this, at some point. Fairies are less popular now. I mean, they were huge back in Arthur Conan Doyle's day, mm -hmm. of course, when he was tricked by the Cottingley fairy photographs. What Fort wants to do is he wants to gather up all of these damned phenomena. One example where the Fortians were kind of onto something was, of course, the giant squid, which we talked about in an earlier episode. Right. The Kraken, which actually does exist. Yeah. And there were... <laughs> 
some scientists who were very reluctant to admit the giant squid into the world of botany because it seemed too ridiculous, it seemed too absurd. They weren't believing people who were coming forward and saying, no, we just got, like, attacked by this thing out in the ocean. And as, of course, of course, as it turns out, the giant squid is legit a totally real thing. Right, so Sanderson is a follower of the work of Charles Fort. And after serving part of World War II with British naval intelligence in the uh, Caribbean, again, this guy has an interesting life. He moves to New York City, and he continues his work as a public zoologist publishing books, and by the late 1940s, getting into the world of radio and television broadcasting. Like, do you remember that, that guy, the uh, Australian guy who got killed by the stingray? Oh, yes. And that is actually who I was thinking about when you told me about his dad. Um, he's that uh, television... Uh, the crocodile zoolog- hunter. The crocodile hunter, exactly. Like a TV zoologist who would go and show you uh, cool, dangerous, exotic animals by, like, capturing them with a bare hands. Yeah. Except one time he was impaled by a stingray. In the heart, tragically. Yeah. So Sanderson was kind of like an early version of that. He, In fact, Sanderson was kind of like the early version of that. Huh. All of the people who came afterwards, Sanderson was the first. He was the first radio TV zoology guy. Okay, okay, I see. So he's sort of caught between at least two oppositional influences, at least two, maybe three, science and Fordian scientific criticism. Like, which way is he going to go? There's a lot of tension in his early work, which is at the same time following conventional scientific procedures and protocols, but he's also kind of flirting with, he's like winking at across the table. So as his date to the party, he's brought science. (laughs) But then across the table, in like a a hot little number, is is pseudoscience. And he's like, he's kind of like, he's winking at pseudoscience and he's having a, a conversation with his date science, but like, but across the table, it's getting, there's maybe some footsie going on there. Right. Yeah, you, you, you paint the seduction and allure of pseudoscience very well there. It, 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 is, it is seductive because it's, because it's so interesting. It's so fascinating. It's so shocking. And, so, and, and it also, solves a lot of problems. And it solves a lot of problems and you don't have to be as careful with it. Right. Like you go out with science. Science is expecting you to behave well and properly. You go out yep. with pseudoscience Get to have lots of fun. You're really going to paint the town red. Exactly. So, (laughs) in part because of this, because of this tension that he has between science and pseudoscience, Sanderson was an ideal person to investigate the odd events that took place in Clearwater, Florida in 1948. Okay. Like New Hamburg, which we talked about earlier with Nithy, Clearwater was a sleepy little town at the beginning of the 20th century, but it grew during World War II when it was used as a training base for American soldiers headed to the European and Pacific theaters. Now, Lee, you're probably familiar with Clearwater as the target of the Church of Scientology's Project Normandy oh. in the 1970s. Okay, I did... I was like, why does this ring a bell? I was scouring for some kind of CIA reference. Do they have a base there or something going on? Okay. Yep. Right. No, it was it was in Clearwater. And like, that's a wild thing. You can look into our episode on that. So 30 years before their government was being infiltrated by Scientologists, the town was being invaded by something else. Since in the winter of 1948, large footprints were discovered by residents coming out of the ocean, stomping around on the beach for a few miles, and then going back into the ocean again. Huh. A few miles, eh? Yeah. Like, it, was, it went for a hike. This thing went for a beachside stroll. 
So the footprints because... were 14 inches long and 11 inches wide. So it's a big foot. Huh. Okay. Not Bigfoot. Before you well, get too excited. Well, who knows? Who knows? Bigfoot coming out of Atlantis. Yeah. I mean, imagine the smell of a wet Bigfoot. <laughs> Actually, I, my dog is not far. I don't have oh, to you, imagine You don't it. have to imagine it. That's, it would smell like that. So they appeared to have been made by something two-legged, and it took strides of about four to six feet. Oh. And it had three toes, again, like Nithy, and there appeared to be some webbing in between the toes, so not, not Bigfoot. Okay. So over the next few weeks, more footprints were showing up on the beach and along the banks of the Suwannee River. Whatever it was that was stalking the town of Clearwater was moving inland. And so the story got some national press. Anytime you have like a monster invasion of a small town, that's going to get some press. One of the people who reads about it, of course, was Ivan Sanderson, and he decides to come down to Florida and investigate the situation himself. So what's great about this is we then have a really elaborate uh, description of his investigation. Since 20 years later, he published his findings in his 1969 book, More Things, which, of course, was a sequel to Things. In the book, Sanderson goes on at length about the tests he and his team ran on the footprints, in which he came to the following conclusions. It was a two-legged animal without a dragging tail. Based on the depth of the footprints, it must have been a large, heavy animal. And based on that, the strides that the animal had taken were much shorter than you would expect. Like, it wasn't like taking these great big long strides, it was taking these little wobbly strides. Yeah. Which is strange. And there appeared to be some webbing between the three toes. He also described some eyewitness accounts that were relayed to him in interviews. Uh, there had been a couple who had been doing some 1940s style making out in the back of a car. They had seen something <laughs> terrible stomp out of the sea. And immediately their, their lust evaporated and was replaced by fear and anger because they went to a police station to demand a rifle so that they could return to the scene and kill the monster. Hmm. Did you know that you could do that? You could just go to a police station and be like, I got to shoot something. Give me a gun. Does that work? I can't imagine that would work. But it was the 1940s and it was Florida. Two men had been out for a swim when they saw a 15-foot-long creature bobbing in the waves with a heavy blunt head and a long blunt tail. Okay. A couple from Milwaukee had rented a rowboat to do some fishing, and they got more than their money's worth when they saw an enormous gray animal with a head like a rhinoceros, thick, short legs with huge feet, and two flippers hanging from its narrow shoulders. Okay. So this is something. There's something weird going on down there. And Sanderson himself claimed in more things that while flying over the area in a small plane, he saw a massive creature roiling about on the surface of the water. So what's going on? What are his conclusions? We said, first of all, it's probably not a dinosaur. But not for the reasons that you might think. Yeah, because they're all extinct. They're all extinct. But Sanderson at this point in his life was very willing, if not eager, to believe that there were still dinosaurs existing on Earth. Right. But this wasn't one, uh, because he said there's no known aquatic dinosaur that had three toes. And this thing came out of the water. It's clearly aquatic. It has three toes. There is an animal. It's aquatic. Three toes. Okay. Takes okay. short strides, wobbles around, walks on two legs. What is it? Penguin. And that's what Sanderson says. It was most likely a giant 15-foot-tall penguin. <laughs> okay. Now, I'm... On board, I am happy with this this idea. The, right. the idea of a giant penguin 
I am like, I'm all in. If I was going to get eaten by a giant penguin, we've talked before about uh, which cryptid we would want to get eaten by. And I think you right. said Bigfoot. Uh, that's my answer to all cryptid questions. Right. Whereas I said I didn't want to get killed by Bigfoot because it seems like they w- it would like rip off your arm and beat you to death with it. This is the one, though. This is the one I want to get. I want to get eaten by. I want to get eaten by the giant penguin because I feel like if I was eaten by a giant penguin, my second last words would be, "Ah," because it would be so cute. I mean, my last words would be, "Ah," because it would be yeah, awful. No, I'm, I'm just wondering. I have a picture of Nathan's belly being pecked open by fifteen-foot penguin beaks. I'm just wondering how how cynical you will in fact be at that moment or how witty and uh hey cute is cute is cute <laughs> but des- right. despite the adorability of the giant penguin didn't really catch on in cryptozoology circles like this no, did not okay. become one of the classics but sanderson did go on after this to kind of be responsible for a lot of as we said the the classic uh cryptozoological creatures okay so this was his sort of founding myth but it didn't catch on, and then he went and wrote other ones. Yeah, after this event, he was no longer flirting with cryptozoology from across the table. Like, now he's having a full-blown affair. In fact, you might even argue that he leaves science. He divorces science to run off with pseudoscience. Because, like, in the 1970s, that was a good decade for Fortean subjects. Yeah, like a ton um, of stuff. And part of that is because of the work of Sanderson. Like I okay. said, he was an early adopter of Bigfoot. In 1959, he wrote an article titled The Strange Story of America's Abominable Snowmen. So this was before Bigfoot was even a phrase. And a 1961 book titled Abominable Snowmen Legend Come to Life. He wrote about sea monsters. He was a big promoter of the Bermuda Triangle. At a time before the Bermuda Triangle had really caught on in the, in the public imagination. In fact, okay. he, he argued that it was just one of the many areas of the world that he referred to as vile vortices. Huh. So there's like a Devil's Triangle off the coast of Japan. Uh, like basically he said there's, there's like a, about a dozen places on Earth where just weird, strange, quasi-magical things happen that result in the disappearance of boats. Okay. And he discusses the possibility that it could be aliens that were causing the disappearances in these areas of the world. He also considered that it might be time travel. Right, okay. In fact, he claimed, in more things, to have traveled in time himself. And not the way that we're traveling in time right Right. now. (laughs) Going forward at one second per second. While walking around at night in Haiti after uh, getting their car stuck, after spending an afternoon gathering freshwater snails... Sanderson writes in more things that he and his wife both suddenly found themselves on a street in Paris in the 15th century. And he said they both saw it and they were both walking around these like classic uh, Parisian buildings. And then after a couple moments, were transported back to Haiti. So this is a guy who clearly now is all in for the world of the of the Fortean world of this, right. of the, of the world of the damned, of the things that science is like, uh, no. Yeah. And in 1967, in order to kind of support this Fortean research, he founds the society for the investigation of the unexplained, the SITU, which is an organization devoted into uh, looking into Fortean phenomena. And that sets up to a degree. It's a contributory cause of what we see in the 1970s, 
which is just filled with ESP and monsters and Bermuda Triangle, like all of this stuff. This is the Time Life books that I had as a kid. Right. And I had as a kid. Yeah, that's this is the this is the decade for them. Okay. And this is one of the guys that kind of gets that all going. However, he didn't get to see it because he died early on in the seventies. Okay. Which also means that he didn't get to see what happened in nineteen eighty eight. Because forty years after the footprints were found on the beach at Clearwater, twenty years after Sanderson published his book, and fifteen years after he died. New evidence was revealed to cast doubt on his giant penguin explanation. Uh -huh. A local man named Tony Signorini came forward in 1988 with a pair of lead shoes the size and shape of the Clearwater prints. Ah, uh, okay. And what he said was, him and a fellow prankster and friend of his, Al Williams, remember that name, it's going to come back, they had built the shoes, and then Signorini, who was like a young, healthy person back then, had jumped off a small boat wearing them, stomped up onto the beach, stomped along the beach, and then stomped back into the water to get picked up by the boat again. And these two men were well-known practical jokers at the time. Uh, in fact, when Sanderson had first contacted the police chief of Clearwater to say, listen, I want to come investigate your monster, the police chief had recommended Sanderson speak with Al Williams about the footprints. Okay. And so you might think, well, why did the chief tell him to talk to Al Williams about the footprints? Uh, in an interview, uh, Signorini told reporters that, that even at the time, he was fairly certain that the police chief knew that Al Williams was behind the whole thing. Nobody really thought it was a monster. It was obviously a hoax. It was the sort of thing Williams had done lots of times before. And that's why when the chief gets this letter from Sanderson saying, I'm going to investigate the monster, the chief's like, you know what? Maybe just talk to this Al Williams guy, and right, I think you'll right, find right. your monster. Right. And what's amazing is we actually have the correspondence between Sanderson and Williams. Oh. And in this initial correspondence, Williams goes on at some length about how hoaxes are far from scarce in these parts. Some have been characterized by imagination, much work, and ingenuity. So, I mean, clearly there, he's like, not only, yeah, oh yeah, there's some pretty good hoaxes down here. There's some pretty smart guys doing some pretty amazing hoax work down here, <laughs> just so you know. Like, he was obviously so pleased about it. Right. This is the thing about the hoax, and the difference between the hoax and the scam, and the difference between the hoaxer and the scammer. Mm. The hoaxer wants to eventually get caught. Yeah, they, I mean, they take pride in, the, in, in their work in a way, right? They want credit for it. Yeah. And if you're a hoaxer, you want to get caught so you can be like, aha, that was all a hoax. If you're a scammer, you don't want to get caught so you can right. continue benefiting from the scam. Right. And sometimes hoaxers, well, as wrong as it is, I think uh, sometimes believe that they're doing it for the good of society. Yeah. Right. So, so you do the hoax, you get a whole bunch of people to fall for it. The more, the better. The more outrageous the hoax, the better. And then by revealing it, you can see you could say by implication and a lot of the other stuff that's out there that's probably nonsense it's probably nonsense because yeah. this one was nonsense and we can think of some examples of this of course there was the uh pacific tree octopus yeah exactly about this was a, a college prof right who was frustrated about people not reading texts carefully and so created a fake text about this animal living in the tree 
And it starts out just like a National Geographic article or whatever, this kind of describing the habitat and stuff, and starts mixing more and more nonsense in as you go. And we've used this in class before to sort of teach careful reading. So the idea was it was a hoax meant to train you to be aware of hoaxes. Yeah. Or uh, the birds aren't real phenomenon. Right. That's a more recent one where I forget his name, but he started quite deliberately a conspiracy theory that birds aren't real, that they were all killed in the 1950s and replaced by CIA listening devices. Now, some people have picked it up as though it were a real conspiracy, especially people who are not into conspiracies, who are like, oh, can you believe how stupid people are, you know, pointing to this as an example. But the idea was to expose the stupidity behind some conspiratorial beliefs. And of course, what is the danger of making a hoax like this, like the Pacific tree octopus or like the birds aren't real? What's the main danger of doing this? Well, I think a lot of times it doesn't go away. And the, and certainly the pedagogical point, while it might be made at the initial time or the initial reveal, is dwarfed by the continued presence of gullibility and retweeting and, and, and republishing in one way or another the original story. And it seems as though the truth never catches up with the hoax and that the hoax just keeps on going still duping more people than are liberated or enlightened by re realizing that it was a hoax. Yeah, because we've been tempted over the years. It's like, oh, we should like do a hoax, and then we can use that hoax as an example to show how false beliefs spread. But then we're like, wait, but we'd just be introducing like a new animal into the ecosystem. Right, which we will not be able to slay. Yeah, we because... will not be able to hunt afterwards because it'll be off doing its thing, and it'll be yeah. out of our control. And And students in years to come, if it worked, would come to us and ask us if we knew about this or that phenomenon that they yeah. had heard about their friend telling them about whatever. So yeah, and because of that fear, we've never gone through with it. Because it never goes well. I'm thinking also of Leo Taxel and his, oh, yeah? his brilliant yeah. hoax in the 19th century, where he wrote all of those pamphlets talking about how the Freemasons were like worshiping Satan and doing like demonic sacrifices and and levitating people and like causing alligators to magically appear. And then he came forward and said, ah, I was kidding. I was kidding to show you guys how gullible you are were. Yeah. But then people forgot about Taxel, but the hoax remembered kept- remembered his ideas. Yeah, yeah, the hoax kept living long after Taxel was gone. And yeah. so now nobody's heard of Taxel, but it's amazing how often I'll encounter somebody telling me one of his stories as if it's a real thing. Well. So, yeah, this is the danger of hoaxing. And this hoax of the penguin, I mean, it was kind of embarrassing to the Fortians, who had long right. held up Sanderson as like an example. <laughs> it's like, no, here's our guy. Here's our rational, right. reasonable scientist guy. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, he was a guy who was interested in odd phenomena, but examined it through rigorous scientific investigation. So people were like, well, how did Sanderson get fooled so easily by this clumsy and simple hoax? But... According to researcher Daniel Loxton, there is a very simple explanation to how this happened. It hadn't happened. Sanderson hadn't been fooled. And uh -oh. what, what Loxton does, and this is a good piece of journalism, he looks over Sanderson's original notes and correspondence and noted that Sanderson was fairly convinced the entire thing had been a hoax when he investigated in the late 1940s. Okay. So he walks into this 
knowing that it's not real and decides to perpetuate it for his own benefit. 20 years later, when he writes a book about it, something happens in between the 40s when he's like, well, this is a hoax. And in the late 1960s, when he says this is a giant penguin. So understanding what happens in there, I think maybe gives us some insight into this world of conspiratorial beliefs. What happens? So like when we look at the original notes, as Loxton did, the eyewitnesses that were mentioned that were true had almost certainly seen manatees, which are large gray animals that float around near the surface of the water and they lurk around the clear water area and they're pretty wild looking. They're pretty mm-hmm. neat. They're, they're big. They're strange. Uh, the story that Sanderson had seen the monster from a plane was not mentioned in his original notes. Okay. Which means that that was something that he simply added later on. Because there's no way he would have seen the monster and not written that in his notes at the time. Right. Remember I said that Sanderson had a radio show back then. And so we have his radio show transcripts. On his radio show at the time in the 40s, Sanderson had said that, I'm personally quite satisfied that the tracks were not made by an animal. It was a man with very big feet, artificial feet. I want to make this quite clear, that I can state categorically that these tracks could not have been made by some unknown animal... I do definitely think they were made by a man. Mm. So there's there's the scientist talking. Right, yeah. In a local newspaper story from the uh, late 1940s, it was clear that the entire thing was probably a hoax. Like at the time, if you look at the newspapers, nobody's like, oh, giant penguin. They're all, hey, somebody did a hoax. Almost certainly Al Williams did a hoax because he's always doing these hoaxes and then talking about how smart they are. Yeah, And when he looked over Sanderson's field notes, Loxton noted that Sanderson had written that the footprints were too close together for an animal with such large feet, but they were the right length for a human with devices strapped to his feet. Mm -hmm. And there's no mention of giant penguins in any of the local papers in Sanderson's notes or on the radio program. Mm -hmm. That is something that emerges 20 years after the fact. Right. So why? Well, in the two decades between Sanderson's original investigation and his book, he had switched from being a naturalist to being a supernaturalist, promoting claims like living dinosaurs, abominable snowman, time travel, water witching, giants, Bermuda Triangle, ESP. And in an interview with a reporter in 1970, Sanderson said, I got bored with animals, frankly. I'd lived with them all my life. Then I turned over to the things that have always interested me, the abominable snowmen. In an exchange with a fellow 40 and researcher, John Keel, who we've talked about before in the Mothman episode, because he was the author of the Mothman prophecies, like Keel is, an, again, one of these great yeah. 40 and researchers. Sanderson wrote, I've got 24 books out now, and the bestseller has been Abominable Snowmen. I've lived off 40 with a solid scientific twist for years, and a bloody good living it's been. 40 is just what the public currently wants. The buying public eat it up and are still doing so. Why in hell don't we try to cash in on it? Yeah. The reason I was interested in this story is because something you said to me at the end of our Atlantis episode. Oh, what was that? You were saying... Tell me the, tell me the smart things I said. I like this part <laughs> who, who of the show. Who doesn't like to hear that about themselves? <laughs> you said that the reason people were writing about Atlantis wasn't necessarily because they had a belief in it, wasn't necessarily because it was accurate or true, but because it sold. That this is something, this is a part of popular academia that we can't ignore. 
Because I said that he was facing two pressures earlier, that he was facing the pressure of science and that he was facing the pressure of pseudoscience. Remember, he's sitting at the table at that party with his wife, science, and his mistress, pseudoscience. Well, there's someone at that table who wants a threesome. And that party goer is fame. That is a seductive pitch. Like, it is very difficult, especially when you're struggling and you're trying to write and it's, it's hard to make money from that. If all of a the sudden there's, there's an offer, it's like, oh, you know, if you just compromise this and you compromise that, then you will make, you'll be able to like print all the money you could ever want. Yeah. Who could resist something like that? Yeah, well, it reminds me also of, and this is the second time in this episode Scientology has come up, L. Ron Hubbard, who works as a science fiction author and, you know, doesn't really make very much money and then takes the exact same ideas in his fiction work and says, wait, no, this is real. This is how things actually are and starts to make tons of money comparatively. And and this seems to be, I mean, you put it in terms of academics, but I think there's this general struggle um, or divide between those people who are kind of wedded to a kind of an intellectual ethics and those people who are more mercenary and who will say, write or do whatever will bring in money. You can be an academic, you can be a show uh, personality, like the difference between the amazing Randy and Yuri Geller, right? They both are magicians. One says, I'm a magician, uh, and, like in the fake sense, and the other one says, I'm, you know, this clairvoyant psychic. You can go one of two ways, and one will make you rich <laughs> if you're willing to do that. So it's it's those kind of like History Channel academics who um, lean into the leading questions. It's people like L. Ron Hubbard who are just sort of real mercenary, mean, unscrupulous folk who will say anything and do anything to people's lives. And it seems, again, here we have, you know, a lot of people are kind of, I come to a point where they're faced with this. And it's, it is understandable. I mean, again, like, um, I don't actually know what, or who knows what, Sandy Hook shooting, radio Alex star. Alex Jones, who knows what he actually believes, right? But he's super rich. Yeah. Or at least he was before the court case. Like he was making a killing, uh, you know, promoting this nonsense. And so it's hard, I think, to, and it's, to it, not give in. And it's always something that we have to bear in mind. Like right now we're living in 2022. And so we've seen an entire industry spring up uh, of anti-vaxxers. This is a time yeah. during the pandemic, vaccines have come out, and there's also been this massive movement against the, vac against the vaccines. Now, you could make the argument, and we have made the argument, and we will in the future, that like massive like pharmaceutical corporations, they are not necessarily acting in our best interest. No, they're, they're not. They're not like they. They're not actively trying to save our lives. They are actively trying to make as much money as possible. Mm -hmm. But in this case, you have an argument why you trust vaccines. It isn't because you believe in the innate goodness of pharmaceutical corporations, but because you trust their greed. So what's exactly. that argument that you make? Well, I, it's easier made with my fear of flying because you don't have to really believe in any complicated medical science. And so I do have a fear of flying. 
Like when I get into an airplane, I'm pretty much convinced that that's, that's it. I'm going to die in some horrendously scary way in the middle of the flight. And then I, I still go, I still fly though. And the reason is because I, I trust in the airline company's greed. I don't think that they keep the airplane aloft because they actually care about me and my children and my family and the hurt that my death might cause them. I think that they keep the airplane up in the sky or take all necessary precautions to make sure that almost always happens that the airplane stays flying because the the if if there were a crash it would be such a terrible business blow they would lose so much money that it is very much in their interest to keep that plane going. And same thing with pharmaceutical products. If the pharmaceutical products actually didn't work and you could show that or were genuinely harmful uh, beyond what is recognized when we do medical studies, beyond what could be expected when you, you do take any substance and a small portion might have an allergic reaction, et cetera, et cetera. If you could demonstrate that those pharmaceuticals were dangerous above and beyond that, nobody would take them. Nobody would spend the money on a headache pill that, you know, caused sterility or blindness or something like that. You just wouldn't do it. You wouldn't take the risk to might as well suffer with the headache. So, yeah, it's the my trust in their greed. And it is like I I trust way more in people's greed than in their goodness. So it's actually I feel way safer on a plane knowing that it's because they can make money this way than if I actually had to rely on them being good people. Yeah. If I had to rely on them being good people, I would not fly or take medicine. Your cynicism has come all the way around and turned you into a kind of an optimist. Yeah, exactly. And I'm totally positive everyone else wants to make money. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> and in fact, in the case of the vaccines, we have seen that there have been vaccines that have been removed from the market because of testing, because yeah. of some examples of uh, some side effects or some injuries. Like, just, sorry to interrupt, but the, the point that you're making here, I mean, just think of thalidomide. Yeah. Today, thalidomide is still the, the go-to example for pharmaceutical carelessness and, ex, uh, you know, medical confidence and excesses, you know? And, and it's now, what, 40 years on since that was taken off the shelves? Mm-hmm. Like, and it still resonates. I mean, you don't yeah. have to be as old as us to know that thalidomide was, a, I, I had to work through a whole bunch of swear words that were about to come out. It was a disaster. Mm-hmm. It, it was a, a drug that was given to women in the 70s when our parents were pregnant with us, actually. Yeah, and my mom actually had morning sickness. It was an anti-morning sickness drug. Yeah, which resulted in deformations of the fetus. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. healthy kids mm-hmm. were born with, you know, virtually no arms or legs or, and it was because it was directly linked to that med that the that the mom was prescribed by a doctor who, going on the evidence of the pharmaceutical injury, said, yeah, sure, this is safe and this will help. Yeah. Um, I was prescribed a drug called Vioxx after I broke my ankle. Okay. And then Vioxx was, again taken off the market because they're like, oh, wait a second, this causes like serious heart issues. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so these things do, they have happened. But here's the thing. 
The argument that people make about the pharmaceutical corporations is that you can't trust them. They're just in it for money. You're saying right. you can trust them because they're just in it for money. But you know who you can't trust because they're just in it for money is the anti-vaccine movement. Right. Because here's a, a general rule that you should always sort of go with. When somebody is trying to say, oh, you can't trust this bunch of people. They're like, they're just trying to scam you. You should ask them, what are you trying to sell me? Right. And in the case yeah. of the anti-vaccine movement, like they're going to say, oh, well, I've got these supplements. Right. I've got like this lamp. I've got, you know, this this device. I've got, you know, these 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 herbs or I've got these crystals, I've got something that you can buy that will protect you. Right. And unlike the pharmaceutical corporations who are giant and can be sued, these people can just sort of vanish and somewhere they can make the claim, this is for entertainment purposes only. Right, exactly. Or they can not market it directly as medicine. Yeah. You know, like wellness products are not medicine. Mm -hmm. That's why they're not called medicine. And so you can make all kinds of claims that you're not allowed to make if you're selling medicine. Yeah. I guess the problem is we are rightfully suspicious of corporations. Mm. And, you know, I want to do an entire episode on, like, the, the Ford Pinto <laughs> as an example. Blows of up, people. Yeah, why we should be very, very suspicious of corporations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that is, in a sense, the classic conspiracy. I mean, the thing that the reason we talk about the conspiracies that we talk about is because we don't expect to find them there. Mm -hmm. You don't expect your government to run secret um, operations against its own civilians to create super soldiers or whatever kind of nonsense has happened. But, the, but they do. You, but they do, and that's where we come in and we're like, surprise, guess what? It right. does sometimes happen. But I think the reason that uh, we haven't talked about corporate conspiracies is actually, yeah, you're sort of walking into it knowing, or like the mafia, you know that that is what that's about. Like that's their mission statement is to screw people out of money. Right. The, Mostly fraudulent. The, the danger is the people who come in promising they're not. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even there, we're too cynical now. Right. I mean, that gets me. I I prefer the salesman who is like, yes, I'm a salesman. Most of what I'm saying is a lie. So here it costs 10 bucks. I'm like sold. <laughs> yeah, I'm into it. At least you treated me like an adult. And so that's sort of like how much of what we understand of like the conspiracy world, the conspiracy, if you will. How much of the conspiracy has its background in this kind of like snake oil peddling, scamming, money-making operations. Because yeah, we see I, with Sanderson things like the Bermuda Triangle, and we know we've done an analysis of the Bermuda Triangle. It isn't any more dangerous than any other part of the world statistically. So that's the thing about something like this, where you, it's like, well, it's harmless. It's harmless, like giant penguins. I enjoy thinking about getting eaten by one. It's how I go to sleep every night. It's funny. I enjoy thinking about you getting eaten by one, too. Yeah. Now, the one that, oh. like, are you a Matt? Well, we'll talk about it off the air. So, <laughs> like, so what's the harm in that? And the harm is, I mean, this is something that Voltaire said, I'm paraphrasing. Like, if you can get somebody to believe something ridiculous, you can get them to do something ridiculous. Yeah. And, but, well, and ridiculous ideas d tend not to just come in one at a time. Once one ridiculous idea is in, all the other ones are also welcome in your home. 
Yeah, and I feel like that was the whole point of the, your exploration of how financial scammers target uh, certain conspiracy groups, yeah. where there's a self-selected group of people who believe the absurd, and so why not make try and make money off them? Yeah, I mean, they, so that's one area I think where you can see the danger. There are so many, I like I come across this so often in the world of healthcare, you can see how dangerous it would be if you believed in a false conspiracy around healthcare that prevented you from getting treatment. I remember when we did our HIV AIDS episode, I, at least in the research phase, encountered a group of people in the 90s who were like, HIV AIDS is not a real disease. Yeah. And so they didn't get treatment. Which got people it. killed. Yeah. And, and probably got other people infected. Yeah. I was talking to my class about what happens when you believe the Illuminati rules the world and how that is very politically disempowering and how that might lead you to stop engaging politically in the world since what's the point? Since nothing we do can have any impact anyway, everything that's happened is controlled by a shadowy elite who do what they want, don't listen to us. And and then when we talked about Atlantis, that we're actually flirting with some pretty unsavory race theory. Yeah, and some fascism. Um, so the consequences for these ideas aren't always clear. And I think that it's always not that you won't be a bad person if you believe true things. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting that you wouldn't be bad if you believe true things. But I think that is sort of a safeguard to being taken advantage of, leaving yourself open to bad things happening to you is really to try and struggle honestly towards getting some understanding of what's really going on out there. Because otherwise you'll be a victim of a financial scam, the medical scam, you know, religious scam. Just there are a lot of scams out there that uh, take advantage of people who are willing to believe nonsense. Yeah. Well, I mean, then look what happened when we were, when I was researching Queen Ramona Dudulo. Right, I think you're still getting I'm offers still for getting, cryptocurrency. I'm still getting bombarded with people trying to take to scam me with cryptocurrency things. Yeah. So, let's go back to Paris, Ontario. Okay. To my weekend of hunting yes. Nithy, the Nith River monster, aka. You're going to tell Capsule. me that that was in fact the penguin after all. No, sadly, <laughs> tragically. So <laughs> I had a nice bad. time. It was a beautiful day. It's sort of a pretty little town. Uh, I picked up some chocolate for Elena. Right. And I saw no monsters. And okay. there's a reason I saw no monsters. There never was a monster. There never was a Nith River monster. What they did have in the town of New Hamburg on the Nith River was they had a big horse race uh, that they were trying to attract attention to. They were trying to get people to come to their town. And right. the thing is, in the early 50s, that horse race was starting to dip in popularity. The Nith River monster was just a way of trying to get attention for their town so that they could get more people in for the horse race. Oh, okay. Did it work? Yeah, it did. Uh, attendance like, went up. Okay. I'm just curious if, if this evil was sent out into the world to live forever, if there was at least some kind of early payoff for it. Yes, know, like... there, was more, there was more horse racing fans okay, uh, in okay. New Hamburg that year. Okay. 